0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. First things first, uh, we're going to come to the Word of God, then um, we'll see how we go from there. I've been talking over the last few weeks, actually, unusually perhaps, from a book. Um, As a pastor, you know, obviously I read lots and lots and lots of books. Um, one particular one over the last couple of years has meant a great deal to me. It's a book called The Mission of God by Christopher Wright. And it's one of those books that you'd love everybody in your congregation to grapple with and come to grips with, um, but realising, A, it's uh, 600 pages long, and B, not everybody thinks about those kinds of books as I do, uh, the chances of getting you all to read it are probably in the same order of me winning lotto. Um, and that's particularly hard since I haven't got a ticket. Um, but What I decided to do was actually um, preach the book to you in some senses. It's not quite exactly word for word or anything like that, but to take you through the concepts of the book um, so that, at least if you can't read it, there would be some sense of what it's about. So... In the first message of the series, I talked about the mission of God in general. I talked about the fact that when we talk about mission, we tend to think of overseas mission, of cross-cultural mission, we tend to think of it in a very narrow context, when in actual fact, it's, it's much wider than that. Christopher Wright suggests that the whole Bible is a missional phenomenon, and that the person on mission is not you and me, or not the church, but it's actually God. And theologians down through the centuries have referred to this as the Missio Dei, the mission of God. So I introduced the subject the first week. The second week, we went more into the book of Exodus, where we talked about the God who reveals himself, uh, the God who is behind the mission. And. Um, that, that particularly is brought out in God's dealing with the people of Israel through the Exodus. He says to Moses in chapter 6 of Exodus, I'm making myself known to you in a way that I did not make myself known to the fathers. To the fathers, to the patriarchs, he was known as El Shaddai. To Moses and the, uh, the community of Israel, he became known as Yahweh, the God of redemptive deliverance. And God begins to unfold something of who he is as a person and why he's on this mission that he's on. So what I want to do now is go into more the people that God has invited into this mission because he partners with people in the mission that he has ultimately to restore both the people and the planet, the cosmos, back to himself. Who are these people that God has enlisted to partner with him in this mission? to restore creation and the people that he created to himself and to their original purpose and destiny. Now oftentimes, in church at least, when you talk about people of God, the people that God has called to be agents of mission, most of us tend to go in our thinking to the great commission of the gospels, you know, go into all the earth and be witnesses to me and so on. Or perhaps we think of Pentecost and the birth of the church, this believing community, as if the Bible knows nothing about mission before those great events. Now, remember, I mentioned in the first instance that Wright talks about the Bible itself being a missional phenomenon from its very inception. And I quote as, he says this, as we consider the people of this mission, arguably God's covenant with Abraham found in Genesis 12 is the single most important biblical tradition within biblical theology of mission and a missional hermeneutic of the Bible. So what Wright is saying is don't start at the Great Commission. That's like starting in the third act of the play. The play goes way back and the, the idea of mission is found in its earliest pages. And so it's there, Genesis chapter the twelve with the call of Abraham, that I want to start looking at the this people that God has invited in to His mission, and without without wanting to appear either simple or as a smart aleck, Genesis twelve comes after Genesis one to eleven, and context is always vital. In the first 11 chapters leading up to chapter 12, we have uh, the story introduced to us. So in the first couple of chapters, chapters one and two, we have God's great work of creation. And it shows us men and women made in the image of God and entrusted with a mission of caring for the earth and enjoying God's blessing in that task. Now in chapter three of the story, it goes awry when human creatures choose to rebel against their creator. They distrust his benevolence, they disobey his authority, they disregard the boundaries that he has established to guard their freedom. And the result of that hubris, that arrogant attempt to seize control of their own destiny and to determine their own authority and moral autonomy was a radical fracture of all the relationships that were established in creation, both vertical and horizontal. We find them in chapter 3 after their failure, hiding from God. They can't face each other without shame or blame. Even the soil, it seems, comes under a curse as it no longer responds to the human touch as it had previously. From Genesis 3 on, as a people, humanity live what, what, what the Bible says is east of Eden. We've been dislocated, we've been fractured, we'd live in a place that we weren't supposed to live. And from that point on, as you read these early chapters, there's an escalation of human sin. In Genesis chapter four verse 8, Cain murders Abel. So we have brother alienated from brother. A little further on in that same chapter, we're introduced to a man called Lamech. Lamech is polygamous. He's married more than one wife. He's vengeful. He's killing people. And we see the alienation now has extended into the broader community. By the time you get to Genesis chapter six and verses one through four, it seems that a line that divides heaven and earth is breached as it says the sons of God God, take the daughters of men. Now I know there's various uh, interpretations of that. Christopher Wright simply says angels transgress the limits of their own nature, and as Jude says, take on uh, take strange flesh with, with disastrous results. Now, for a time, this downward trajectory is halted or slowed by the instance of the flood, where God says, I've had enough, I'm going to destroy everybody except Noah and his family. And so there is a brief respite, but once again, after mankind begin to um, multiply and expand, there is once again a rapid escalation of that downward trajectory. When you come to Genesis chapter 11, another line is crossed as men attempt to build a city and a tower that will, it says, reach up into the heavens. Now, that's a determination to do more than build just simply a very tall building. That's not what they were saying. That tower, that that building that has its... Roof in the heavens was what we now call a ziggurat, which is a temple-type structure that the ancients believed served as a gateway for the gods to enter into the earthly realm. The gods would descend down the stairs and enter earth scene. So these people have without doubt crossed a line now they they have sought to make a name for themselves this is a sign of their willful self-reliance they have refused to be scattered from the central location to fill the earth as god instructed them these people are intent on reaching the heavens all the while resisting god's will as it, it concerns them on earth now in the midst of the downward trajectory there are signs of grace and there are people upon upon whom the grace of god rested there's enoch there's noah but truth be known, they are few and far between. And by the time we, ent- we reach the end of chapter 11, it's clear that the great mission of God has been thwarted and spoiled in ways that affect not just human beings' uh, well-being, but affect the whole of the cosmos. So these chapters, Genesis 1 to 11, pose a cosmic question to which God must either give up his mission or provide a cosmic answer. Where does the mission go from here? What can or what will God do next into the midst of this uh, situation that is completely unraveling? What we find God doing is something that only God could have thought of. He finds an elderly, childless couple in the land of Babel where they were building the tower and he decides them that he will make them the fountainhead, the launch pad of his whole mission of cosmic redemption. And you can almost hear the sharp intake of breath from the heavenly hosts as God announces and reveals his astonishing plan. You have got to be kidding. What? So a new world... And ultimately, a new creation begins with the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. And it goes like this. Let me read it to you. Now, the Lord God had said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who who, who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth, Shall be blessed. So, this new creation begins in the same way the original one did, with God speaking. And God said, Let there be light. And there was. Here, Yahweh speaks. The word of God that spoke the very Beginning In the very beginning, into the darkness and watery chaos of Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, now speaks into the darkness and barrenness of Abram and Sarai's life. And he speaks to them a good news, or the gospel if you like, of an astonishing reversal. And this text of Genesis 12 is so pivotal that it occurs at least five times in the Genesis narrative with minor variations of phraseology. Here in chapter 12, in chapter 18, chapter 22, chapter 26, chapter 28, this portion of Scripture is repeated. God doesn't waste time with just uh, excess words. When you find something that God is saying five times, there's significance, So God speaks to this elderly man and he instructs him to leave his land, to leave his people. He says, get yourself up and go. The Hebrew language indicates a decisive action. If you will leave, then I will make your name great. Only Abraham's leaving will release the nation's blessing. There can yet be blessing for the nations of the earth, but it will not come from within that world itself. Abraham has to relinquish all that ties him to the land of Babylon before he can be a vehicle of blessing to the whole earth. Babel, which has been the climax of the problem in chapter 11, cannot be the source of the solution. So God pulls this elderly couple out. In that previous chapter, chapter 11, the people of Babel had tried to make a name for themselves. They sought to achieve their own greatness and renown. To Abraham, God says, you obey me and I will make your name great. There is an echo here that's surely meant to be deliberate. When humans try to achieve renown and arrogance and independence, their endeavor is doomed. You know, one of the best definitions of sin I've ever read is simply the attempt to take by force the very thing that God wants to give you by grace. These people attempt to take by force that which God offers to Abraham by grace. True renown only comes as a gift of God's grace. There is another echo between these two stories as well, and it's the phrase, the whole earth. In Chapter 11, that phrase, the whole earth, is found five times in verses 1, 4, 8, and twice in verse 9. In Abraham's call, also the whole earth is in view. The ultimate purpose in Abraham's call is global blessing for the whole earth. It can't be achieved in autonomous independence. It comes as God's gift of grace. We are meant to see the call of Abraham as God's response to the world that is portrayed in the preceding 11 chapters. The call of Abraham is the beginning of God's answer to the evil of human hearts, the strife of nations, and the groaning brokenness of the whole creation. Bishop Tom Wright, not the same as the person who wrote the book, who's Christopher Wright, says this of the call of Abraham. The story of Israel, starting with Abraham himself, had always been the start of a rescue operation, the beginning of a long purpose to put humans right, and so in the end put the whole uh, world right again. So this is God's mission now. He's going to set the whole world right, and he's going to do it through this man and his descendants. As God repeats this promise to Abraham in subsequent chapters and uh, encounters, it's made explicitly clear that there is a relationship between God's promised intentions on the one hand and Abraham's faith and obedience on the other. On this one hand, God's initial choice, address, command, and promise to Abraham were all unconditional in the sense that they didn't depend on any condition that Abraham had fulfilled, any prior condition that Abraham had fulfilled. They simply emerge out of the unexpected, unmerited mercy and grace of God, out of God's undaunted determination to bless the human race of divided nations in spite of all that's happened that has thwarted his goodwill so far. On the other hand, however, there is an implied conditionality in the very form of the foundational address that you find in Genesis chapter 12. Everything hinges on the opening command. If you get up and go, Abraham, if you will go. The subsequent statements about God blessing Abraham, magnifying his name, multiplying his progeny are all predicated on Abraham actually getting up and going. So the will and purpose of God then is grounded both in the will and grace of God but also in the obedience of this man that he's calling and subsequently in the progeny of this man, the seed of Abraham. The promises of God are there, people enter into them. Before you think, Don, what has all this got to do with us in the 21st century? I'm skipping toward the end of the story here but... Paul in Galatians says, If you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed. So, this has to do with you and I. This has to do with you and I who are invited to partner in this wonderful Missio Dei, the mission of God. God's intention to bless the nation is combined with human commitment, uh, with the human commitment to a quality of obedience that enables us to be the agents of that blessing. So the glorious gospel of Abraham, as Paul talks about, the good news of the Abrahamic covenant is that God's mission is ultimately to bless all of the nations. The enduring challenge of that covenant is that he planned to do that through Abraham and his descendants. And there can be no blessing for ourselves or others without faith and obedience. Those whom God calls to participate in his redemptive mission for the nations are those who exercise saving faith like Abraham and, and demonstrate costly obedience like Abraham. The things that God said to Abraham become the ultimate agenda for God's mission. I want to bless the nations. I want to set the world right. And the things that Abraham did in response, faith and obedience, become the proximate model for for our mission, for your mission, for my mission. As you begin to engage with the story, um, it becomes incredibly apparent that I think modern-day evangelicalism is woefully inadequate. We tend to forget about all of the story thus far. As I said to you before, we kind of launch into mission from the Great Commission. And, and for, for the majority, perhaps even, of evangelical churches, if you ask them, what's the mission of God? It's people get saved. People go to heaven. That's our mission. We want to see people saved and, and God's intention and purpose is to get as many people into heaven as he could possibly get into heaven. Now, it's, it's okay in as far as it goes, but it doesn't even go a quarter of the way to what God actually has intended Yes, of course he wants people to demonstrate saving faith and obedience that will bring them into a relationship that is, secures their eternal future. But the idea of whisking them off to some ethereal place way up in the sky where forever and ever they will remain is not found in the New Testament. You say, well, Don, don't you believe in heaven? Yeah, well, yeah, I do. But, but you, have to, you have to ask, what, what is it? Where is it? And as you trace through the New Testament, yes, you'll find that the Bible talks about those who are absent from the Lord being present, uh, absent from the body, being present with the Lord. I have no problem that our dead loved ones who love Jesus are right now in the presence of God and experiencing a joy that we probably at this point in our lives know nothing of. I have no problem with that, but I do have a problem with thinking that that's all that it is and that that's all that awaits everybody, a disembodied sort of relationship somewhere way out there. The Bible knows nothing of that. You know, in, in, in the Bible, in Hebrew thinking, we are not spirit and body, spirit encased in a body that needs to be shed so that the spirit can go free, that's Greek thinking. In Hebrew thinking, you are an incarnated soul, an embodied spirit, you, nobody is nobody. We are, we are to be raised in our body. Listen, if heaven is all that it's supposed to be right now, why would we want resurrected bodies? The, the purpose of God is, is an embodiment, a joining of heaven and earth, and our resurrected bodies are a vital part of that. And if you read Revelation 21 and 22, you'll find that it, there is a heaven and it's here on earth that ultimately the whole cosmos will be covered with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And John describes it as a perfect cube and that immediately in your mind makes you think of the Holy of Holies in the, in the, uh, right through the uh, Moses' tabernacle or Solomon's temple. That was the place where the concentrated Shekinah glory of God dwelt. He ultimately intends that that glory will cover the whole of the earth and the earth will be populated by resurrected, redeemed people who will glorify God and live out a life on this cosmos, a renewed planet. That's the the mission of God. And to simply say we want to see people saved and go to heaven, and that's all we think about is to to sell it short. As vital as that is, as necessary as it is, it's the opening gambit of a story that goes through to Revelation chapter 21. I, I... I think we've sold our mission short. I think we have to be captured by the idea that God has a plan that goes beyond simply your personal salvation. This is a plan that's big enough for us all and should capture our hearts in ways that perhaps the idea of just going to heaven sitting on a cloud and playing a harp for a million years plus 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 doesn't. I think it was Huckleberry Finn who once listened to his teacher talking about that and talking about heaven going up and playing, you know, harps. I suppose you don't play harps like that, do you? Shows my musical skills. Playing harps on on clouds for all eternity. And Huckleberry Finn lent lent over to his mate Tom Sawyer and said, doesn't really excite me. I'm not sure if I want to go. And I'm with him. You know, if you play the harp brilliantly, you might feel differently, but most of us don't. You know, I remember talking about this one time and a a person came up to me afterwards uh, and you may well be here, I don't know. But he was a young engineering student. I suspect he's probably graduated, gone on and is building bridges somewhere right now. But he came up to me and he said, after I talked like this and he said, do you mean to tell me that on this new heaven and new earth, I might be able to use the skills that I have as an engineer to increase culture and to bless this cosmos. And I said, you know what, I think the Bible might teach that. And he said, that would be heaven to me. He said, I love engineering. And I said, well, imagine doing engineering in a world that wasn't fallen. And he went off floating. (laughs) Not to a cloud to play a harp just in delight, okay? This is the mission of God. We are the people of that mission. New creation has started in you. God's work in you wasn't simply to get you saved. When Paul says, and you've heard me say this before, I say it again unapologetically and in closing, God's work in you wasn't simply to get you to heaven. When Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The he is is in italics, which simply means if any person is in Christ, new creation, it has begun. You are the first signs of ultimately what will be. You're on a mission as exhibit A of what God has intended to do. Your salvation is about more than getting you to heaven. It's showing to the rest of the world what new creation starts to look like. Now that is a challenge. That is a challenge. And that's the challenge that we'll probably investigate next week. Okay, Father, thank you for the power of your word. Would you allow it to grip our hearts? We confess, Father, that so often we see in part and dimly and miss huge portions of what you want to capture us with. And so I pray the prayer of David, Lord, show us wonderful things out of your law. Would you open our eyes and reveal to us your purposes in ways that we have not seen, that we do not experience. Our heart is to be witnesses to you in this world that will honor you and bring people into that great mission to share with us and with you. Would you please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.